What is up, folks? It's the Emulsion Podcast, hosted by chef and media producer Justin Kana. That's me. The Emulsion is a result of my desire to educate, share, and personally keep myself up to date on stories stirring up the restaurant industry. I also sit down and interview remarkable professionals that are making exciting moves in their own unique and creative ways. Fine dining, chef swaps, new gear, critiques, professional performance, balance, hospitality, as well as the occasional rabbit hole are all just a few of the topics we get into here. But the goal, of course, being that you take off your headphones or get out of your car feeling smart more inspired or more connected than when you pressed play. Where is the long ad read? You will not find that here because the growing gang of amazing folks on Patreon make it possible for me to hit the publish button every single Thursday and I'm eternally grateful for their support. But more on that after the show. What is up folks? I just wanted to quickly jump in before we get into this episode because this is not the typical me interviewing someone else episode. This was actually my guest Ray DeLucci asking me to be on his show first and the contingency was because both of us are you know in the industry and also produce media. I thought the conversation would be good enough where we could actually repurpose it and also make it an Emulsion podcast episode. So then I could introduce you folks to Ray's stuff if you aren't already familiar. He is the host of the Line Cook Thoughts podcast, which if you're looking for a positive, progress-focused place on the internet for people like us, I couldn't recommend it enough. I highly suggest you check it out. And because I know he's the type of person that is also creating media and asks me for advice all the time, we actually riff on a lot of cool things that I don't normally talk about on the channel, including some of the ways that I felt when I was starting out doing this this whole media production thing. If you want to get in touch with Ray, if you want to be featured on Line Cook Thoughts on their Instagram, you can go ahead and hit him up. All of the links are down low in the description. But uh, yeah, I think that's everything that I wanted to say. Intro over. Let's get into the interview. Welcome to our podcast together. How's it going? Good. And yourself? Doing well. Um, I know I, I wanted to have you back on because you were on my 10th episode of the podcast. Or I wanted to at least talk to you on a podcast because you were number 10. We're at, this was, I'm at number 46 right now. And Jeez. you've done, thank you. You've done so much uh, in the last couple of months. I just wanted to touch base with you and kind of pick your brain more about chefs, social media, and everything else. Yeah, let's dive into it. Do you, I mean? Do you want to start somewhere, or I don't know? Has there has there been anything that's come up since the episode that you want to maybe touch on as a quick follow up? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's a couple of things. I mean, a lot of people have reached out to me since our episode uh, talking about uh, documenting themselves or how mm-hmm. you how you had your kitchen set up um, in one of your kitchens when you started out uh, as a YouTuber and whatnot. And they're finding a lot of struggles with that in terms of maybe their kitchen's not letting them document, or maybe they just don't feel comfortable bringing a camera into that setting. And I've been asked a lot what that advice would be for them. And I don't know, because I don't YouTube. So I figured we'd start out with that is how you navigate that type of a type of situation. I think how I would go about it now versus how I actually went about it are two very different pieces of advice. So we'll we'll start with the the thing that actually happened. So what actually happened was I had just finally gotten good at using a camera and being able to edit. And I felt like I was in a good place where I wanted to start documenting. And the other very important kind of asterisk to that whole story is that I was a sous chef at the time. So I had, you know, a certain leadership capacity where I wasn't someone who had a prep list to execute. And if I didn't get it done because I was filming myself, I I, I wasn't going to really get yelled at because I was managing the kitchen and I had the flexibility to, you know, if I, if I wanted to shoot in the morning and then stay after and do my orders later in the evening, I had that kind of time flexibility. So I think those things are very, very important to start. I, I didn't, do the, all that much documenting when I was a line cook or a chef de partie or you know a co me even just starting off because 
I mean, most people that are listening to this show know what that's like, where, you know, you're at the bottom of the totem pole. And so I guess the next step was I approached my chef, who was Christopher Hatuft at this place called Lisverkit in the West Coast of Norway. And I told him, I was like, I, I really enjoy this video thing and I really want to start to experiment with it. And I would like to start this show called Dish of the Day, where I just document a dish that I'm working on for the menu. And he, the, the, the luxury I also had was that my chef was on TV at the time. So he was doing this Norwegian TV show. And so he was used to being on camera and getting teleprompter uh, scripts to read and having to read the same line eight times over and over again with hot lights in your face and cameras pointed at you from three different angles. So he had this kind of reference point where we could almost speak peer to peer on a certain level. I mean, he was on the you know mainstream TV side and I was trying to go this internet route. But he could give me some advice on on-camera presence, which was also nice. But basically what he told me was, you know that if you shoot anything in this kitchen, the restaurant is going to own it. And it's going to be my content, not your content. And I I think I've told this story before, but I, I foolishly said yes, because the only thing I wanted to do was shoot. I didn't know if I was going to get big. I didn't know if anything was going to happen. I just, I just knew I wanted to do this show. And I was humble enough to know that he was letting me use his kitchen and his ingredients and uh, you know, his space in effect. And even though I was technically doing work for the restaurant, I was okay with kind of putting that best foot forward and just saying, you know what, it, it's okay if you own the content. Um, that never followed through. Like he doesn't own, we, we never sign anything. He doesn't really, you know, ever quote unquote own any of the content on, on YouTube. But he was basically letting me know that there was a transaction taking place. You know what I mean? So I think that anybody who is looking to start that kind of stuff should kind of look for these cues in you know, whoever they're looking to approach. If your chef has done Beat Bobby Flay or, or Hell's Kitchen or Iron Chef or even, you know, had a local news station come in and do coverage on the restaurant and has experience with media, I think that that's kind of like a anchor point to start that conversation to say, you know, I want to do something similar. I'm interested in building my brand. Um, and you can call it whatever you want. I, I've seen it in a couple different fashions. I think, Ray, you and I are both in agreement that there, it, it is still very new, right? Have you noticed anybody? I mean, maybe this is me bouncing a question back to you. Have you seen anybody doing anything on the you know, not celebrity chef side of YouTube that's really been impressing you lately or seen anything that's inspired you? No, not, I mean, in terms of like actual cooking or the like actual day-to-day grind, no. The only mm-hmm. person who I can think of who wasn't a celebrity chef, but has become celebrity from doing a cooking video of sorts, is probably binging with Babish. <laughs> yeah. Yep. That, but like, Have you heard of this other? There's another guy on YouTube, and I uh, th- thank goodness we're recording this on laptop, so I can just look this up real quick. I just subscribed to him, uh, Joshua Weissman. Are you familiar with him? I have not. No. I'll have to send you his stuff. So I, it's crazy because he has like three, almost 400,000 subscribers. And he was a chef at a restaurant in Austin. I'm almost positive he was a sous chef there. And someone had commented on one of my videos, you should do a collaboration with Joshua Weissman. So I was like, oh, cool. I had it on my manifesto this year that I was going to do some more collaborations. And that sounds interesting. So I looked this guy up and he's doing really awesome food. He's making like Japanese yuzu condiment and black garlic and doing all these like more than prosumer home cook style videos and his execution is great 
And I just think that that it has been the latest kind of inspiration for me on being a chef on YouTube. That's like you said, uh, because binging with Babish actually does some interesting techniques, right? Like he doesn't just, uh, I don't know, make pasta dough, you know what I mean? And call it a cooking video. Um, so yeah, I, I think that for, for anybody that's interested in documenting, and this is what, something that I tell people that I'm coaching all the frickin' time, is even if you don't think you're going to use it, whip your phone out and document yourself wherever you are in the process. Because what I wouldn't give to have content from me in culinary school, <laughs> because I would be posting that all over the place. I mean, if you have any sort of level of ambition and you think, I mean, even if you have the audacity to think that there's going to be a documentary made about you someday, they're probably going to want content from you in your early days. And it doesn't even have to be a documentary. It's even like, how cool would it be on the opening day of your restaurant to have content from you when you were just starting? And I just think that um, there's no there's no pressure to, like, there's no reason not to have that content for yourself. Um, and so that's kind of like where I push people to go because it doesn't have to be high quality. You just have to have it on the record of like, this is where I was six years ago when I was getting my ass beat and I was prepping for too many hours and I was getting yelled at and this is how I was feeling. And look at where I'm at now. People just love those, those origin stories, you know? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I agree with you on documenting uh, in culinary school. I'm, you know, starting to write a book right now. I've been writing a book of sorts. I didn't know um, that. Yes. Yeah. It's not something a lot of people know, but I am starting to write a book. Uh, I've always wanted to. Uh, being yep. an author has always been a goal. Um, but I, I keep writing and I keep th wishing I had a chapter that was all based on notes I have uh, taken in culinary school. Like I wish I would have sat down every night and just took a couple notes so I could have compiled it later into a chapter or two of the book that I want to, you know, put out for cooks, you know? So I, I agree. Sure. Like if you have, if you're starting out, like even if you just write something down, I just think it's important that, you know, I wish I would have done yeah, to be able to, like you well, just to be able to bring out that paper, right? Like I just recorded a video that might be posted by the time this podcast is out, but it's, it's pages from my externship manual. Uh, when I was at Per Se. And yes, some of the words I wrote in that were kind of fluffed up for my school and for the pro the externship manual project, but still to have this written documentation of what I was feeling walking into Per Se in the first few weeks is is pretty valuable. And I'm, you know, look at me now, I'm recycling it and turning it into YouTube content for other people that are starting off to hopefully help them. And one thing that I really wanted to add that might click for a few people is that you know, if you're in school or you're just starting at a new restaurant, you might see doing stuff on camera or documenting or creating content or whatever you want to call it as having your chest puffed out too much. And I don't want to post this as my first day because I don't feel like I'm worthy enough to post that I'm working at this restaurant yet. I don't, I, yes, I have a job here, but I don't think I'm good enough to post that I'm have a job here. Do you know what I mean? And so I think that, uh, D don't don't you to to all those people that think like that don't you think it would be sweeter to hold on to that content and then post it in a few years when you are actually killing it and then just to show like i started here and this is where i went i i, I think anybody can relate to a story like that of i started here and look how far i've come and so i think that the common thing to see is people you know posting selfies of them in their whites at their culinary school 
and trying to flex on everybody on Instagram, when in reality, it's just cooler to kind of document what you have and then kind of build up this great storage of almost like a, a time capsule of like where you were at. And who doesn't like going and looking back at time capsules? So I guess that's where my advice is there. And it doesn't have to be fancy. It doesn't have to be prim and proper with great lighting and high quality microphones. All it has to be is you in your authentic state uh, so you can show people in the future where you're at. Okay. Um, yeah, well, thank you, you know, for sharing all that. I think mm-hmm. a lot of people mm-hmm. need, need to hear it or need or will gain a lot from hearing it. Uh, but you said per se, and it sparked something uh, in me that I wanted to chat with you about, uh, and I'm glad we're doing it on a podcast, is your last episode, your last podcast episode, you are talking about a review of per se, or basically how some reviewers keep saying that like it's so much money to go eat a per se or is right. it worth to go eat at these restaurants and i really enjoyed your take on it and it was almost just like you know, like i just don't get this idea of is it too much money in terms of like i don't think anyone who's going to per se is going there for a deal or like a two-for-one special you know what i mean it's like right, they're going right. for an experience and i agreed with what you said in your podcast in terms of like you know, there's a reason why th- that meal is the price it is. There's a lot of labor. There's a lot of things that go behind it. And uh, I- I'm in the same boat with you. I'm, I've been getting really tired of seeing these uh, articles or these reviews talk about how, how high of a cost some of these restaurant menus are. When- and then we also sure. have the standard of paying our paying employees correctly. So I just wanted to maybe touch on that a little bit with you because yeah. I agree with what you said on your podcast. Right. Right. So for everybody that doesn't know, it's from this guy named Ryan Sutton. And I think the reason that I get so salty when I see his writing is not because he has that opinion. I think I get more salty at the fact that he, uh, of of where his place is in the larger media landscape. So I'm almost positive he holds the title of, let me just fact check myself here right now, um, senior editor, senior food editor at Eater. Um, let me see. Let's see. Oh, that's from August 5th. And his title says, oh, it doesn't say, but anyways, he is not just, it's either senior food editor for eater or senior editor for New York's eater, which is like, that's not an easy job to come by. You know what I mean? There aren't that many senior editors of food at eater. And when that publication or that website or that media platform has the authority that it does in the space, to have someone who is so singularly minded in what they will look at to nitpick first, and that point being price, I think it's just very harmful because it's a bad metric to judge something by. And the thing that I preface that rant in the podcast on was the fact that he went to this place in Hudson Yards where he was getting ripped off, essentially. Like he was getting told that something was going to cost $165 and then he would get the bill and it was $197 because it was a restaurant where it, the bill price was dictated by the weight of the fish you were ordering. So if you, it was like $39.99 a pound for this fish. And if it, the, the server would come over and say it's a three pound fish, but really it was a 3.3 pound fish. And so you would end up getting charged more for that, you know, kind of dish that you ended up ordering. And then yeah. there was an article came, that came after that where he talks about per se and how how good it's gotten under Chef Corey Chow. And 
yeah, he just keeps coming back to that to that price point. So to kind of tie a bow on all of that, I'm mad at Eater for putting him in that place where, you know, they they just let him spew these thoughts that I don't personally think are productive for anybody in the industry. Um, yeah, maybe the, you know, f- person who works on Wall Street who is interested in, you know, what's expensive and what's not, or the person who is already not sound with their finances and wants to kind of know what's too expensive and what's not, that can kind of be productive, but it's almost like this weird kitschy gossip writing, not productive food writing. And for anybody that wants someone who's a little bit more articulate with it, there's uh, Melissa Caputo is an employee at Per Se, and she wrote a great Medium article that I linked in my podcast talking about how um, frustrated she is with the way that Ryan Sutton writes in that way. So um, yeah, I, I, I just think that I will continue to chat with, to chat about his writing. And for an update on that, I did reach out to him on Twitter and I did ask in his DMs, hey, do you ever want to have a conversation? I will be in New York in September. If you want to schedule a podcast interview together, I would love to kind of get more clarity so that I'm not just you know shouting in my own silo chamber about this stuff. Because if I'm going to be a critic about his stuff, I deserve to give him you know, the, the, the conversation, the dialogue to at least make sure that he says his piece. And um, I have a couple episodes prior to this one. This is not the first time that I've been critic, uh, uh, that I've been harsh uh, on his stuff. And he used to run a blog that was all about food and restaurant prices. And so this is not a new thing. This is not just something that he's found to be kind of successful. I don't think that the, anyone at Eater is pushing him in in this direction. I think this is kind of a high horse that he has and he enjoys getting on it and spewing thoughts out into the the void that is the internet. And so that's kind of like where my head is on that. I don't think that um, he should continue to review restaurants in that way. Um, I'm looking at his kind of feed on Eater right now and most things have a dollar sign on them or... uh, uh, words like delicious steel in relation to the price, um, upgrade, literally a dollar sign in this one. Yeah, I just don't, I don't know. I don't like Ryan Sutton's writing and I, I, I keep talking about it because I hope that if someone stumbles upon my podcast for the first time, they can kind of be a little bit more critical of what he does for a living. So that's my piece on Ryan Sutton. Yeah, I mean, I, I I wasn't too familiar with his work, um, and for me, it was just the idea. And I, it's not just him that has it. I know a lot of people who have this idea. A lot of maybe a lot of cooks too have the idea of, you know, pricing and why do these fine dining places, you know, price at three hundred, maybe even sometimes four hundred dollars a meal. So um, they're I, not like the question I ask is like, what like what do you what would you rather have like totally. stodgy A's that don't get paid anything mm-hmm. or like, mm-hmm. I, I just don't get, I just don't get the argument. I mean, I, I always, and I've been saying this maybe not on the record, but behind to, to some of my friends who are interested in food in general, I say this all the time, which is people will pay $279 for tickets to go see the weekend or Drake or chance the rapper. Do you know what I mean? And mm-hmm. you're going to stand you're not even going to get to sit. 
you're going to listen to his music blasted over these crazy loudspeakers, and you're going to be up in the nosebleeds, and you're barely going to be able to see the person you came to see perform for $279. And then people will look at a $160 tasting menu where you're going to get 11 different types of food prepared individually, seasoned by a professional who does this for a living. You're going to get to sit in an amazing expensive chair at a table and someone's going to come by and talk to you about the food that you're eating. You're going to get one-on-one interaction with the people who are, you know, responsible for creating this experience. And those, for some reason, don't hold the same candle in people's minds of like $300 uh, concert ticket, $300 meal. Oh my God, like the meal sounds so expensive. Do you know what I mean? And the people who are making money off the concerts are profiting way more than the people in the restaurants who are you know, maybe not even profiting all that much off of the tasting menu that they just served you. And so I just think that there needs to be a reframing in people's minds of like, what are you actually getting when you go out to a restaurant? Like, what are you actually getting in relation to what you're paying? And, you know, if you want to just sit there and kind of order off the menu and, and be a low maintenance guest, then that's fine. But I also think that, you know, the ability to, I mean, you, you were at 11 Madison Park, with with us when we had that drink you know what i mean like people coming over to you having conversations asking where where else should we go in new york like there's so much wealth of there's there's such a wealth of an experience to be had at a restaurant and you know people are sometimes really keen on just mailing it in and eating the food and then leaving but there's so much more that's all you know quote unquote included in your in the price that you're paying just not a lot of people are willing to take advantage of it um so I, I guess that's yeah. top of mind when I'm thinking about prices, you know, and, and that's, again, why I don't I get frustrated hearing Ryan Sutton compare things like that, because it's not apples to apples, you know. Um, so I don't know. Just thoughts. Just thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I feel the same way in the sense that I, I it's just for us, I guess, for like for people in our country, I think we just don't value food as much as we do other things. Sure. Um and I just don't think we see food as a thing as, as something that is as important as going to see a concert. Mm. Right? Like food has become so quick and so fast and just a means to keep your body going for a lot of people. They don't think about it a lot. Yep. Um, yep. And, but, I mean, obviously there's people that do there's people. And then there's people in the industry who just don't like fine dining and think that they don't want to pay a price. And that's cool too. I mean, I totally get that side of it too, but I think at the end of the day, when we're looking at stuff, issues like mental health and stuff like that, which like, you know, pay is a big part of the stress of a, of a chef. Absolutely. And if we're going to have these establishments that do these 11 course tasting menus, the cooks need to be paid adequately. And the only way to do that is going to be a higher price point. So at the end of the day, it's do you either, you know, we, and I, th- I talked about this with Jenny Dorsey when she was on the podcast, do we totally get rid of fine dining or do we like dumb it down or like, do we just pay more and have the consumer pay more so we can get this fair, lifestyle for these cooks like what's the answer you know sure and i don't think that there is a singular answer i think there are ways around it i i i am also very humble to the fact that i don't own a fine dining restaurant for that reason so i am very cautious to you know spit my thoughts on this topic because I think that it can very quickly get turned around on me. If I have advice for people that have fine dining restaurants, it can quickly just get, you know, flipped back on me and say, well, you don't have a restaurant. 
And part of that reason is because I spent so much time in them and I saw the kind of ramifications of what happens when the restaurant is slow and people have to get cut and you know you tr- you want to go up and request a, a raise because you want to be making a little bit more income but you know you can't because you know that the restaurant you know th- there are so many other things that you know would improve your day-to-day life right like why would you as a chef go ask for a raise when you could be using higher quality product or get new equipment or upgrade the locker room or a, a number of different things like buy different plates so that the guests can see something different that they haven't been seeing for the past three years. Right. And so there's so many expenses that go into it. And that's kind of like where I had the big turning point of the next project I do, the next venture I go into is definitely going to be a little bit more profitable on that side so that everybody can get taken care of. And yeah, it doesn't technically look like a restaurant with what I'm doing now, but, um, I'm still cooking. I'm still creating. I'm still growing my network. I'm still learning, getting inspired every single time I go out to eat. And that makes it in, its way into my menus now. And um, that's kind of been my happy place. And so I'm going to continue to do it until I figure out, you know, kind of what that looks like and a, a blueprint where I can encourage other people to to do not something exactly the same. But I think that uh, <laughs> there's there's usually phases in chefs lives where they're doing pop-ups right you know there there there's no one who's a career pop-up person right even looking at someone like Laurent Gras who he has his restaurant now you know in Cezanne where he was doing pop-up restaurants for a while and he couldn't get a sound investor to invest in his projects and now he has a restaurant of his own so i, I i'm also under i'm i'm seeing the writing on the wall and i i, I have no doubt that I might find myself in a permanent location someday because I see the benefit in having a consistent place to work out of every single day. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm curious to see where things go because the way that the current model is set up with a lot of places, if you want, and that's the other thing that I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on, Ray, is that do you think that some of these, the reasons that these places are operating at almost a loss sometimes is because they would rather give up profitability and staff happiness for fame, notoriety, accolades? Hmm. That's a tough question. I mean... Because back to that question I I asked of like, well, you could pay your staff higher or you could get fancier steak knives. Do you know what I mean? And if the goal is to get two Michelin stars instead of one, whoever is making that decision will always go for the steak knives because whatever will impress the guest more is the priority rather than is my staff happier. But then the weird long-term ramification of that is if my staff is happier, they'll probably make better food and serve, you know what I mean, provide better service, which might then make the guest happier. Do you know what I mean? So it's kind of like a, a roundabout way to get to the same place it's just where do you pull those resources yeah i mean for me i would always say that at the end of the day if your team is not happy like you you're not going to be successful mm-hmm. no matter like you know no matter your name no matter the the notoriety you have or the fame you have i just i feel like if you don't have people that will solid, solidly help you achieve your dream then i don't think it, it, it is worth it i don't think it will, would be 
uh, very successful. And maybe there are restaurants out there like that. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I think I don't think I personally would say I would always err on the side of the employee. I mean, yeah, I mean, we're um, definitely making a lot of blanket statements right now. There's not it's not to say that there are no restaurants that take care of their teams because there there are and and I I love them for oh, it. Yeah. But I think I heard this great uh, we spoke about Gary Vee on our last podcast, but he had a great interview where he spoke about how he prioritizes his decisions and he said it was his employees followed by his the um followed by the what was it the audience of his clients and then the clients because he's a he runs a media company and so i think for us as chefs i think it would probably be our staff followed by i don't know what 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 do you think should be the next one because i was going to say the purveyors and then follow that with the guest, but some people would probably argue the guest is more valuable than the purveyor. I don't know what, where that where that should I mean, end. And I, I, I mean, I would, yeah, I think the guest. I mean, I would say the guest. I would say the food going to the guest. Mm. I would say after the after the team, it's what what's the food we're putting out? What's the level the team can execute at? So then it should be the purveyors because if you take care of your purveyors, your food's probably going to be better. This is this is interesting. I don't have opinions on all this stuff. I haven't talked through it enough. I haven't gotten enough, you know. I haven't played around with testing these different, you know, what happens if you care about the purveyors more than the guests kind of thing. I've worked at restaurants that definitely uh, say that they do. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they don't. Um, but yeah, this is all definitely like open dialogue. If you want to get in touch with Ray or myself about this and open up a conversation, are you on Twitter, Ray? Yeah, <laughs> I am. Um, it's very small. Yeah, ish. Like 10 followers. Yeah, I have like yeah. two hundred followers on Twitter. I'm also very small, but uh, yeah, that th- this that I would love to expand this dialogue a little bit more um, on what you know what people have had experience with prioritizing as far as like if I have you know an extra twenty thousand dollars left at the end of the year, am I more likely to invest in finding purveyors that are producing higher quality stuff, or am I more likely to invest in nicer chairs for the dining room um you know because most business owners have to come to those crossroads and they have to make those decisions um so i'd just be curious anybody that's listening and has you know hard data based on well we tried to do it into the guest and it didn't really work out because no one noticed and we would have been better off going into purveyors um yeah i'd I'd love to hear any of the thoughts from either the line cook nation or, or my audience um, if anybody has thoughts to share. Yes, definitely. I would love, I would like to hear it too. I mean, maybe we can put out like an Instagram poll or like mm-hmm. you said on Twitter mm-hmm. for more dialogue. Um, why don't chefs yeah, use Twitter talking more? About thoughts, why don't chefs use Twitter more? Yeah. Um, I, it's so frustrating. I mean, for me, I mean I'll, I'll be honest with my reason. It's like, I don't know. I feel like at the end of the day, there's so much, for me, there's so much talking and there's so much, commotion that i don't feel like getting into it there's a lot of noise direct conversation Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah man i would love to have a great engaged twitter following and i need to find a way to cultivate that because i just have so many times during my day where like i have a thought or i have something i want to share and i just know that um and it's not because it doesn't get met with hundreds and hundreds of likes that's not the point the point is I feel like people are in the same boat as you, Ray, where they they don't want to engage because they're afraid 
of, you know, taking someone off or hitting someone's sensitive bone and, you know, becoming a viral thing on the internet if they, if they comment something. And I've, I've been in that place too, where I see a tweet and I'm like, I should respond to that because that's bullshit. <laughs> or, you know, oh, I really actually yeah. agree with that. Or, oh, I actually think that's funny, but that's kind of a crude joke. And I don't do it because I don't want to uh, set the alarms off. Um, but that's, that's interesting that you say that because I wish there was a better, more engaged Twitter. And I think that Facebook is just a black hole. Like, I think that if you post things on Facebook, they're just going to go there to die or get trolled on, um, which is interesting. I did cut you off, though, and I interrupted you. You had a question. No, you're good. No, actually, to get on to the um, Twitter thing real quick, though. So, like, I do enjoy Twitter. I like to look. I like to read. Me too. I even like to engage. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I just, there's something about, um, hmm, let me think. Let me think. There's something about, I guess, talking on Twitter that isn't as, for me, it isn't, it hasn't been as productive. And I guess that's what I'm trying to figure out. Right. And so I've been trying to understand more about it, but like, like I'll at, at cooks or I'll add at people. I, I'm just not used to adding at people. Yeah. 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 And sure. I think that's the big thing. It's like, who is like, and like, who am I going to like end up talking to, which I don't mind talking to any cook, right. but you know, it's just like, I don't have any context of who that person is. And um, it's weird because I run an Instagram and a podcast. I don't know. I mean, maybe I will start using Twitter more. Well, that's my, that's my dream. That's my dream is to just be able to have an idea of a video. Like I have so many ideas of videos I want to make and be able to post that. So I'm looking at my content calendar right now. So I have this, uh, I have this theory that I think certain chefs, the ones that don't necessarily feel like this is a good phrase for them to use should stop using the words, putting myself on a plate. Have you heard that phrase before? Like when a chef says, oh, I'm putting, I'm putting my, my identity, like it feels too identity focused. Right. And I think that there's been a lot of talk in the entrepreneurial world about detaching yourself from your work so that you don't hold too much identity in your work. And there's another argument that says in order to be a successful artist, you have to have your identity in your work. But I think that there, and again, I'm trying to be contextual with this, but certain people who don't feel an attachment towards their food in that way, and they just want to make tasty food. They don't necessarily have like this story of their heritage or, or uh, something that they want to say with their food. They just want to make great tasting food. And if we stop this culture of saying that we need to put ourselves on a plate every single time we serve a dish, I think that that would help with a lot of the mental health problems that come with criticism of people's food. And so I have a video about that I want to make about that. And it would be great if I could put that in a tweet and then everybody could react to it. I could see all the questions and criticisms that people have. And then I could address all of that before I make the video. And I think that Twitter is a great way to do that. Um, and I just don't have the following for it yet. So that's very like top of mind for me to cultivate that more and more and more. I have a couple videos that I've released where I, that's my call to action at the end where I say, follow me on Twitter. Um, but yeah, we'll see. You know what actually I would be curious to hear your thoughts on is Snapchat. Because I've had a ton, 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 ton of people add me on Snapchat. Especially like the 13 to 17 year old demographic, which is no surprise because that's where their audience is and that's what they grew up on. But 
I've been curious what it would look like for me to create more Snapchat content because there's a lot of people there that are, I, I don't know even if I can see how many people are following me. But anyways, have you been playing around with Snapchat at all? Um, no. So I think for you, I think for you, it'd be great. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, because I don't do as much, I do audio and written content. I don't see Snapchat fitting into it right now. I eventually do want to do some sort of videos or like interviews and maybe have that be like micro content for Snapchat. Um, but like right now, I, I have not. I do not use Snapchat. I don't even use Snapchat personally. Yep. Uh, when Instagram kind of got stories is when I kind of left the Snapchat right. world. Right. Um, but I think it would be cool at some point to have a line cook thought Snapchat mm-hmm. where it would be like a video of a cook sharing their line cook thought. Totally. And like printing that out. You know what I mean? Yep. So something where I'd have to get more involved than just me. But for me personally, no. But I think like you, you like when you're traveling or like when you're working on like behind the scenes on a video or something or, you know, you're, I think a cool video would be like a 10 second, t- 10 second video of you like get, grabbing your drink of the day or yep. something. Yeah. Like yeah. 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 Like, totally. Like, I just like posted that, on cool your audience. I just posted on Snapchat right now talking about Snapchat with Ray of Live Cook Thoughts. So anybody who's following me on Snapchat hopefully saw that on the day that we recorded this podcast episode. So meta. Uh, but yeah, I just think that I, I totally agree that there is so much valuable behind the scenes stuff to be had. And I just like, I'm even bad at posting on Instagram stories lately because I took it off my home screen. You know what I should do? I should move Snapchat to my home screen and then maybe use some of that. Anyways, have you been affected at all by any, uh, we've seen a large kind of influx of people who are saying, I'm deleting Instagram. I'm going to turn my phone grayscale. I'm going to take a detox from social media. Do you feel, I mean, you ran, you're running a, I would argue, successful, engaged audience on Instagram. Do you, have you felt any of those kind of needs to, to do a yeah, detox I mean- or anything like that? I've definitely seen drop in engagement. Mm. So I mean, looking at my, so I, to give context, like about a month and a month and a half ago, I used to have about 900 profile visits wow. in the last seven days. Yep. Um, I'm down now to 245. Jeez. Uh, my post, my you are posting are less though, hundreds. right? I am posting less, yeah. which is mm-hmm. true. Yeah, I'm posting a lot less. Mm-hmm. Uh, I post about once a day. Yep. Um, but even like a month ago, I was posting once a day and I'd get like likes for around 110, 120. Mm. Um, but like the last week, two weeks has been really slow. And I mean, part of it is me not being as engaged on Instagram. Sure. Um, but I have seen just a drop in visits to the page or just uh, engagement or just all around. Like, I feel like Instagram, it doesn't feel as busy right now. And maybe it's because it's the summer. Uh, I don't know. But it just doesn't like it doesn't seem as busy as it was maybe two months ago like i'll reach out to people every day that's how i get my line cook thoughts mm-hmm. and almost everyone used to respond and now like these accounts i'm not even like seeing them open the message so totally. i'm not i don't know i mean i think i've felt it in some way mm-hmm. maybe i'm going crazy maybe you know my page is going through a lull but i've definitely have felt a drop sure. in some engagement well that's why i ask if you have thought about any other alternative platform i mean like youtube has been a saving grace for me because i mean I remember in 2014 when I was thinking about is YouTube is it is it too late to start YouTube in 20 freaking 14 and it's like even bigger now than it was then and I thought it was too late to jump on that bandwagon and 
I don't know. Are you thinking about any of that, like diversification and different platforms you want to publish on or, or different places to share your ideas? Because I don't know, if, if, if you were to ask me for advice, if you're seeing that dip and that causes you any sort of panic, even investing a little bit into a different platform might be a good good move for you. Yeah, I mean, I definitely have been trying to do a little bit more on Facebook. Uh, I want to start because there's a lot of like old. Uh, I mean, it's a demographic. There's a lot of older cooks Correct. on Facebook who I started following the page. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the Facebook page is only around like 500 followers, but still, I mean, that's something. And then Twitter is something. Like I said, I I want to be more engaged in. And whenever I do tweet, you know, there's a couple more likes from people I don't that don't follow me. Mm-hmm. So just learning that system. But there definitely is a need for me to get not as central on Instagram because right now it's Instagram and podcast and podcasts I know is not going away for the time being, but Instagram is something that has sketched me out with it being down what three times now in the last four months, maybe even more. Mm -hmm. And it's like when that's down, like sure I have these other outlets, but I haven't groomed them. I haven't grown them to the point where I can, you know, reach out to other people on like my audience in the same way. So I mean, Twitter and Facebook are the big focuses. Um, I don't know, maybe a LinkedIn at some point would be cool. Yeah, uh, LinkedIn. As it starts, it, you know. Yeah. I mean, I, I can see you killing just, it on LinkedIn, I, especially because of the structure of your content and the way that you are so, quote, focused. I think there's so much value there. I was, I, I mean, I've just been here listening and trying to noodle on how you could make a YouTube play. Because I think that there's a lot, I mean, my my YouTube channel is a testament to it. There's a lot of people who are interested in chef-related YouTube content. I'm just thinking of like, in the same way that you sourced quotes on Instagram, how could you figure out a way to have some sort of like a Google form or a Google Drive folder where you could encourage people every week to submit, you know, 10 to 30 second clips on a certain topic? Do you know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. think of it like this. So so this week is walk-in it's, it's all about the walk-in and I want a 10 second tour of your walk-in and then every like people just grab their phone or if they have a nice camera and they want to do their camera and make something cinematic and cool in the same way that are, are you familiar with um who is it moment like moment lenses uh, for iPhones do like their film festival and these guys uh, Colin and Samir are two youtubers that do like a weekend film fest and they just get people that are interested in filmmaking to produce short one minute films and then they review it and then they give prizes to anybody who wins. I think that could be a really cool YouTube play for you to like make a montage of like, this is 26 people's walk-ins and this is 10 clips uh, just to see inside different kitchens all around the world. Um, I think it could be cool. And then like your favorite knife, like show me a 10 second clip of your favorite knife and talk about it. And then it's very easy for you because you could just drag and drop all the clips into you know, Premiere Pro or iMovie or whatever you end up using for editing. And then it's a very easy export for you. So it's not a lot of work from you, but you're kind of crowdsourcing your own content. I don't know. That's just where my head goes of thinking that's about a great idea. Yeah, because I think that people would be keen on submitting if you keep it easy, you know, like something easy to say yes to. Like, I only need 10 seconds. I don't need you to be on camera. I don't need you to have any sort of personality. I just want to see inside your kitchens. Or yeah, because you could yeah. like you could do like dishwasher profiles or how you label your mise en place or what your prep list looks like today. 
I think there's just so much there that you could create and people would like watching it too. I don't know. That's just where my head goes for you to start to diversify. Um, and I'm just spitballing here. <laughs> you can take it and run in whatever direction you want. Oh, thank you. I mean, yeah, YouTube has definitely been a big goal of mine mm-hmm. just because I, I, YouTube is, I don't watch TV. I watch YouTube. Totally. Like, totally. No well, TV it's intimidating though, right? Cause everybody's like so many people are creating such good content on YouTube that you think that it has to be this like super manicured, groomed, perfect editing, cinematography kind of thing with a bunch of graphics and stuff to be a good YouTube video. But in the same way that you have grown an audience on stock, basically stock photos and quotes from other people, I think you could do the same thing for your YouTube, dude. Yeah, I think yeah. so too. I think, I mean, that's what, that's what I really like about what I've created is that it's all based upon everyone to- else's. Yeah, you're you're a curator. Um, you're a great you know, curator. You're you're bring you're you're finding people who have an opinion that will resonate, and you're asking them to share it, and you're giving them the platform to do it. There's value. There's so much value. Um, so yeah, noodle on that for a little bit. I'm curious to see where you go with that kind of nugget, if if anywhere at all. You don't have to, but yeah, I mean, I will definitely do that. And um, I mean, you talked about it a little bit, and I wanted to ask you more. Is as I've as I've been doing this, I'm eight months in. Uh, a lot of people, when I share their posts or when I shout them out on the Instagram, you know, they're so grateful and like it's it, it's almost like a lot of people tell me that it's like, oh my god, I made it! Like I got shouted mm-hmm, out on this, mm-hmm. or you know, like a lot of cooks, like whenever they get their food shared on the page or whenever I share a quote from them, they share it on their story and. Oh, their their friends like are like so excited that it got shared and it's like this big to do and it's just like you you and I have this audience now and it's just like we're I, I just feel like I'm just a cook doing this and it's just like who am I you know what yeah. I, mean? I don't know if you ever get those sure. those thoughts mm-hmm. of like you know, this is crazy that other cooks are looking mm-hmm. up to me for in some way and I'm just you know doing what I enjoy so I don't know I don't know if you ever have feel that responsibility or if it ever weighs on your mind yeah I think that is a fantastic full circle statement because I think that like, can you imagine if there's someone who ends up being, you know, standing on stage and accepting a shorty award, which is like the big YouTube awards in, you know, 2024 and it's in the food category or the chef category. And they talk about because they got on the line cook thoughts, YouTube channel for featuring a 10 second video of their walk-in. And that was the spark that made them want, like, finally get the confidence to start creating, like, documenting their journey as a chef. And then that then led to, you know what I mean? Like, that's kind of where my head goes with it. But I think that you and I just have this sense of responsibility towards wanting to improve the industry because we've seen different sides of it that can sometimes not be all that great. And I just think that you and I have this, you know, 10 year, 10, 10 to 20 years of content about the chef industry through, you know, Anthony Bourdain and Mario Batali and all these people who have restaurant experience who wrote about it. You know what I mean? And I'm not saying all of it was good and I'm not saying, you know what I mean? But I think that because we were able to see all of the bad and kind of get that as warning signs, you and I might have this internal drive that makes us want to make the industry a better place um 
I don't know. Do you, do you, do you, yeah. does any of that resonate? Yeah, oh, definitely. I mean, the whole reason I started this is because when Anthony Bourdain died, I thought we lost him. Like the voice of the cook mm-hmm. was lost. Mm-hmm. And I say this all the time. I don't ever think I'll be him or be sure. what he was to the industry. But in some way, I want to keep that that spirit of, you know, the voice yep. of the cook alive. But um, I think the biggest thing for me is, and this is what I'm writing about. This is what I like to, like to talk about in, um, in my podcast is the, the thing, the big thing that I, if I can tackle anything in the industry, it's the idea that in order to be a cook every weekend, you have to go out, you have to get drunk, yep. you have to damage your mm-hmm. body and that all you can think about is cooking and then trying to out drink or out um out party someone else and then like you do that for your 20s and then your 30s you become successful and like i feel like this is why we get why a lot of cooks get so damaged and i want to be an example or at least someone who champions in some way a healthy mm-hmm. lifestyle where you know necessarily i'm not i don't go out and party um i work on stuff like this, or I read cookbooks, or I do things that are engaging to me. And, you know, I mean, there's nothing wrong with partying, but like this whole, I just, I just don't like that uh, framework that a lot of cooks are in. And then also on top of that, that fine dining is the only option that you can go into. I put out a poll today on um, my Instagram that was very surprising because I asked if you would rather have a, a restaurant like Le Bernadette or a group like Danny mm. Meyer has. And the Danny Meyer group was winning. And I feel like Whenever I've asked a question like that before, it's always been that one fine dining establishment. So maybe there is a shift, but I just, I don't know. I just want the, I just want the path in everyone's mind to change from, I need to go and suffer and then go to fine dining to there's so much out there and fine dining is on an equal playing field as owning. Sure, sure, sure. You know what I mean? So, so many things to on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that makes my head go in so many different directions. So your first point, I, that, that touches kind of on what I was bringing up earlier about uh like you know we you and i probably both read a little bit on marco pure white and and his stuff right and almost everybody that's probably listening here has heard the quote never trust a skinny chef you know what i mean and that mentality of like you have to you have to be the utmost authority on cuisine and pleasure and you know what i mean that i i just don't think that it's necessarily the direct correlation to success as a chef like you can i remember reading articles on i'm bringing him up again laurent gras when he was at l2o and how he would bike like 37 miles before coming in to run the restaurant and he was just this totally different paradigm of being a fine dining chef. And I'm not saying he's the end all be all of who we should look to. You don't have to go to do crazy strength training or, or endurance racing before you go into your shift. But I just think that I, I agree with you where the partying lifestyle never really resonated with me. And I had my first few kitchen jobs where I went out for a few weekends with my, with my peers and, and my coworkers and, I just wake up the next morning and just not feel super stoked about what I was doing. And I actually got really depressed at Grace during that time. And I don't really, I, I need to make a full out video about why I got in that headspace. But I think that that definitely led to it. It was like, it just felt very unhealthy uh, living that lifestyle. And then the other thing that you touched on, which I think is really interesting is I've said something in this in this vein before, but it's like being a musician and 
everybody saying that the only way to make it as a musician is being in a symphony orchestra, but you just know in your heart of hearts that you're a freestyle rapper. Do you know what I mean? And I think that I posted that on Twitter the other day, and there was a couple interesting reactions to it. I asked people to name a three Michelin star restaurant that doesn't have a tasting menu. And there wasn't, no one really gave me a, a good answer. And I think that that's part of the problem, right? Where you see the quote unquote best in the world as tasting menu places. And if you're looking at that and you're saying, well, I, I'm not a tasting menu chef. I don't, I don't know what to say in a tasting menu. I don't know what to, I don't know. I don't get excited about cooking a tasting menu. So does that mean that you can never have a successful restaurant? And I, I think you and I would both argue that that's not the case. I think that there's been some great content that comes out and some great awareness that's being driven to places that are not doing tasting menus. But I just think that there can sometimes be that identity crisis of, well, I'm seeing this be successful, but I really want to do this. And I think that to anybody that's listening who doesn't feel like wherever the status quo is, is speaking to what they're interested in creating, I don't think that there's any reason for you to. So like, who was that? that was, maybe it was Gary. And I will quote Gary V until the cows come home because I, I, I really, really resonate with that man. And um, I think that he has this bit when he, right when Pokemon Go came out and shout out to everybody that's still playing Pokemon Go because it's one of my new obsessions again, is that he was like, well, if you <laughs> were a Pokemon YouTuber and you just happened to see that Star Wars was coming back into the limelight because they were creating new movies. And you were like, well, man, everybody's doing this Star Wars thing. I don't really like Star Wars, but everybody's doing it, so I should do Star Wars. You're probably going to be a pretty mediocre Star Wars YouTuber or blogger or whatever. But if you were to just stick with your guns and become the best Pokemon YouTuber that you could be, all of a sudden when Pokemon Go comes out and every single person and their brother is playing Pokemon Go, everybody is going to suddenly flood to you to consume content related to Pokemon. And there's, you know, I don't necessarily 100% believe in the if you build it, they will come mentality because I think that there's more to it than that. But I just think that if anybody's listening and, and, Lebernadin doesn't sound like their jam or if you know there's there's also someone listening that's probably like having a restaurant group sounds freaking exhausting and I don't want to manage 600 employees I only want to have my one little open fire thing that I cook at four nights a week and that's what I want to be my project because I want to have time to I don't know make quilts on the side like that's what I want to be my my jam I just think that there that you and I and so much of the people that we interview on both of our shows is to show people that there's more ways to win than just what's been outlined before us. And so, yeah, I think that's kind of like my piece on that. Do you have anything else you'd like to share on that? Yeah. I mean, I have, I have a, a short story or I guess it's a two part story. The first part is I remember when I was in my year, year and a half of college, because at the CIA, I, I did a lot of stuff. Like I was president of student government. Like I did a lot of like leadership roles. Mm-hmm. I really enjoy leadership, or at least, sure. You know, that's why I think that's why mm-hmm. I like Gary mm-hmm. V so much. Or just like engaging with people is like why I right. like the food industry the most. Um, and I remember thinking, oh, am I in the wrong industry? Because I mm-hmm. love talking to people, um, and like the industry is great. But like I'm about to be a line cook for the mm-hmm. next seven years. And I remember I was sitting down with um, his name's Evan. He's 
one of the facilities managers at the CIA. Uh, I was working with him on a, a student garden. And uh, basically, he sat me down and he was like, what are you going to do? And we had talked about this before. And he was like, where are you going to go? And I was like, uh, you know, I'm going to Chicago this uh, summer to go stodge at a couple of Michelin star restaurants. And uh, he's like, well, what are you going to do after that? I'm like, well, I'm just going to be a cook. And he was like, you like, he's like, okay. He's like, I think that's, he, he broke it down for me like this. He's like, I think what you are good at and what you've shown you're good at is managing, leading, and yes, cooking, but also doing it in a way that you're also leading and bringing new ideas. And I think what you're doing the cooking job for is because that's what everyone expects out of you. And that's what the path is for most people who graduate from this school. And he was like, he just said, like, I just don't think you're going to be as successful as a cook as if you would take a leadership role or a place where you can go and just grow not only as a cook, but as someone who manages and grows mentally too. And I mean, that advice really shaped and changed my life coupled with finding out who Gary Vee was and his advice and just so many mentors. But I guess what I'm trying to say is that, yes, I love fine dining, but I'm not the right. best fine dining cook or chef mm-hmm. or whatever you want to call it. But I, but I really enjoy leadership and engaging and like, that's what I want to be. And just for me, the Michelin track wasn't what, would fulfill that mm-hmm. want the most. And I think that a lot of people have that feeling that Michelin isn't their main track and that, but they're scared because all their friends are going to Michelin or that's what's expected out of them or their parents think, Oh, I can't wait for my son or daughter to have a kitchen. When in reality they want to be a food blogger and they're never going to have that kitchen, but they're so tied up by what their parents want or what their friends think they should be or what they think they should be because of what someone else is. And I guess that's the big reason why I think we need to have these conversations of diversity in the workplace. I think that I I 100% agree with what you're what you're saying and I it 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 doesn't come up all that often because I I forget that that is kind of the path that ended up being laid out before me, but I have one episode that stands out for me early early on in the podcast. I want to say it was like in the teens of podcast episodes. And I made a very bold statement, and I'm going to make it again here on the Line Cook Thoughts podcast, which is a, a, a risky thing to do. But I said something along the lines of that. I, I, I truly think that I am the best line cook that is available to a chef in the terms of, and it was, it was, very, it was very cocky, and someone's going to get pissed at me and call me out for it. But I truly think that, I, I just remember... Michael Rollman writing something about watching Grant Ackett's cook at Per Se. I want to say, was it at Per Se? French Laundry. It was. It, it was definitely at at French Laundry because um, Grant Ackett's didn't work at Per Se. But um, he tells the story about how Grant Ackett's had, you know, his six dishes on his tasting menu plus three on the veg menu plus. X, 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 Y, Z amount of out of place stuff. And he just moved with such like purpose and he was able to just fluently execute on these dishes and all the callbacks and communicate with his station partner. And I just like, I held that in such high esteem when I read it. And I got to that place cooking in Norway where I was just like, I mean, we had a seven course tasting menu and six of those dishes came off of, of my menu. And I was, you know, cooking over open fire plus a four burner stove plus roasting chicken crowns in the oven. And it just like, um, coming up with new dishes. And I had my out of place mise en place super on lockdown and I was c- communicating with my entremet chef. And 
I got to this point where I was like, I wish I could just do this for my job. I wish I could just scale all the way up and I could make, you know, the same amount that an executive chef makes, but I could be a line cook. Cause that's where my flow state is. My flow state is just like crazy busy service, like more covers than anybody is comfortable with. All your mise en place has to be tight. The critic is in. Chef wants everything to be perfect. I want to be the person on the lead station. But the problem is no one's going to pay me more than just above minimum wage to that to do that job. Because there's someone that's going to come in that's going to do it yeah. for cheaper than I will. And so that's kind of what prompted this whole journey is like, how how long can I stick it out before, like, how long can I continue to cook in this fashion before I have to, you know, default to having a restaurant? And so I'm grateful that I can still continue to cook in that way. I just think that... Um, it's frustrating that that there is no way to be to be in the same way that you know if you if you're a really good basketball player that's how i think about it right if you're a really good basketball player or you can really throw a football really well someone will pay you a lot of money a year to throw that football and there are other people in the organization that will coach you and sell the merch and do all this stuff but if you're a really good line cook it, it's very you will very quickly get booted from that style of work because there are other things that are quote unquote more important than roasting the fish or grilling the lamb. And I think that that's frustrating that that is kind of the way the place that the industry is. I I just had this fantasy of wanting to be able to make as much money as an executive chef did, but be the line cook. You know what I mean? Um, Yeah. You, yep. In a way. So like, I'm I learning I'm that about revert. you. I'm learning that. Um, I so I lo- so I love co- like I love like being like in mm. those busy times. I love like I love the energy, um, but I like doing like I like like when I'm in that like busyness. Like I, like, I really enjoy it. But I also like the aspect of going into a kitchen and meeting new people and establishing relationships and like you know, really working hard on something or maybe not doing my best at something and someone holding me accountable. I just like the whole like personality side of it. Um, more than I enjoy the cooking. I like the people mm. more than the cooking, I guess, mm-hmm. in a sense, or right. the managing of it. But I love the days. And it was this last fall. I was home in Buffalo and I was the cook for my chef Ross, who was on the podcast, um, who, you know, he got to go to Spain and go to like the best restaurants and whatnot. That three months was some of the most fun times of my life where I was just in a kitchen cooking. I was there every day. I was coming up with many items. Um, I was with the team and I would cook and I would go home and I wouldn't worry about anything else. And that was when I started this so I could like do that, like the podcast and whatnot. And But I just loved that. But then I was out in California this past summer and I also loved the semester where I had to plan this dinner. And there was a date the dinner was coming. And going to meet the vendors and getting all the produce and getting all the relationships established and figuring out where we're going to get the linens. And I guess what I guess I'm trying to say is the whole what you're doing interests me because as much as I love working on the line, I realized that it wasn't as engaging for me. It wasn't so engaging when I was at work, but I like to have something right. to do outside of work. I don't want my job to be done when the last right. one goes in the window. And so like maybe doing like a pop up or like managing mm. in some way like that's where I find I'm my strongest because I'm able to have these, like, I love calling people at like nine at night, mm-hmm. figuring stuff out. Like that's what I'm 
like really like in a mood to talk and whatever. So, you know what I mean? It's just like different things like that. And so like, I just don't see, I don't see myself in like that cook role where you are, where yep. you like say your flow is my flow is more, you know, during service, Hey, where can I get this? Or we're running out of this. Yep. Who can I call or who can I rely on when my, when, like when someone else calls mm-hmm. up, like, that's what I like, like, you know, both having to do with busyness, but both way different in how we are. Well, I learned that they're not all that different of animals, right? Like they're, they're, they're two sides of the same coin in that, in that regard. Right. When I started, you know, managing and running my own dinners and, and, you know, growing my team here in Seattle, I noticed that there's a similar kind of adrenaline rush and feeling of flow when you're managing a pop-up, when you're really trying to execute on an event kind of, kind of thing. And so I don't think that it's, all lost. And I have certainly grown and developed a lot where I do take a lot of pride in how I run events now. But I totally hear what you're saying, where, you know, there's different elements to it. And one thing that I did want to touch on, which you brought up briefly, was the idea of spending time in Michelin places. And so where I'm going with this is you talk about being a great manager because you have line cook experience and you can empathize with your line cooks. And I've also experienced that with my friend, John, who I've had on the podcast, and he credits a lot of his success as a sommelier with having chef experience. So he can talk to a chef about food, but also bring his wine knowledge to the table. So the chef can tell John about his or her menu, and then John can riff on the wines because he understands what that chef is talking about with food. And I think that if anybody is you know, hearing this and saying, oh, well, that this podcast gives me permission to not ever pursue fine dining or Michelin restaurants. I don't necessarily think that that's the case because I think that even having some sort of brush with someone executing on a very high level gives you the empathy to see, oh, well, maybe I don't want to execute fine dining Mexican food, but I saw this thing at this one French restaurant where if I put a paper liner underneath my tacos before I served them out of my little taqueria, that would actually make people really happy. You know what I mean? Or if I served my beverages in this way, because I saw it at this really nice bar at this hotel that I visited in Singapore, that would actually make my bar a little bit more special than the other ones in town. And so I don't necessarily think that everybody has to hold Michelin as the end-all be-all of cuisine and restaurants. But I think that in the same way that you talk about having line, like it gives you empathy, right? And that's what ultimately is the currency that will drive the creative that you're going to push out into the world when you're trying to share your ideas as a chef or as a restaurateur or as a food truck fleet owner. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think maybe that's something I haven't been clear on. and mm. You just brought it to my attention. I don't think I've ever said this on a podcast, but I definitely think mm-hmm. people should stage at Michelin kitchens or work in fine dining for a little bit. Like I don't, I don't ever want to sound like I don't think you are at all. And yeah, I, mm-hmm. I don't want anyone to think no. But like for me, like Michelin stages were some of the most important lessons of my life. I remember I went to Atera when I was in my second month of culinary school, and I learned just very how little. I was second month of culinary school. I was staging at a two Michelin star restaurant realizing just how little I knew about cooking or fine dining or anything about food whatsoever yep. on that level. 
And I, if I had never went there, I would have never known. I would have always been naive. I've always thought like, oh yeah, they're doing just fancy food, but actually going there and seeing the dedication and the skill and not being able to cut basil fine enough at the time and not being able to do certain things that they thought mm-hmm. I would be able to do. Um, it was eye opening. And so, yeah, I mean, those stages were so totally, transformational. Totally. So. You had a couple of questions that you sent through and I just want to make sure that we covered them. Um, did we answer both of these questions? Yeah, I, I think the social media yeah. one was good, but I wanted to end with, um, I mean, yeah. not end, I, guess, mm-hmm. I, mean, I know we're ending soon, so I guess I wanted to wrap it up. But a lot of people, I feel a lot of cooks feel that this is still so new, but they have examples through you and I, and, you know, Humans of the Kitchen is a great account. Uh, yeah, there's so many, there's starting to be so many pe- different people who are doing food really like true cooking, like food, like cooks mm-hmm, mm-hmm. content, I guess. And um, I think, you know, for everyone out there, like you started at a time where there wasn't, mm-hmm. ba- there was barely anything. So I wanted to talk about when you were starting out, how did you have the courage or the, I guess the drive to keep going when you didn't really have any peers and how did you stay focused when all the other content was like, yeah, you know, like stuff from the Food Network, <laughs> yeah, as yeah, a clip yeah. on YouTube. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I guess what were your thoughts on all that? It was, it was, it was really hard. I, uh, I have a video coming out as kind of a thank you, ten thousand subscribers video, which also probably is out by the time this podcast airs. But I do talk about that a little bit because there was nobody directly messaged me and said, "Justin, what the fuck are you doing? Like, why are you producing video content?" But it had to have happened where there was a little bit of behind the back chatter about Justin's making these YouTube videos for the 120 people that are subscribed to him on this platform. And I, I don't even have anything to say as far as like, I told you so like the, the, I understand why people think in that way. Cause it was really weird for me to be doing stuff like that in, I don't know, 2015, 2016, whenever my first, a couple of videos came out and I just had this intense, and I think I mentioned this on the last podcast, I just had this intense in my belly desire to make it so that I wasn't another chef who was complaining about there's no good cooks these days and good help is hard to find. And I didn't want to be a hypocrite. I didn't want to not put content out into the world that also helped the industry. And so that's, if I had to distill it down into one thing that is what kept me going is i knew that my intent was good and i my my head was screwed on straight and i was doing something that was helpful i wasn't doing it for followers i wasn't doing it to make money i was genuinely doing it because i wanted to help people and that more or less kept me more focused than anything else but the same token i'm just an intense believer that if you want to do something different you should open your mind up to other industries and other facets of creatives. So when I say that, I'm talking about like I watched travel YouTubers and I don't know if you know this, but there's this growing scene of like programmers and coders that vlog their life. And it's just like watching people like that who are like documenting their journey as you know something that's in in an industry completely different to ours but they're effectively doing the same thing 
which is like putting content out to share what their experience is like and offer some advice, not as gospel, but as, you know, this is what my experience has been and this is what's helped me. Hopefully it helps you kind of content. I just think that there's so much there. And I think that if anybody has something that they want to do that is, you know, kind of holding them back as far as like, well, what are people going to think? I don't think that that it, it's not productive. The, the what is the quote? The quote is um, from it's it's something from Tim Ferriss's show, and it's not might not be Tim himself. It might be somebody else, but it's talking about you. You know, it's time to write the book when it's more painful to not write the book. <laughs> Does that resonate? in any in any way where it's like it it keeps you up at night like every single time you see a book on the shelf you're like god damn it i should be writing my book or you someone asks you what you're up to or what you're passionate about or you're listening to a podcast like this and you know exactly what that idea is in your head that's the time like that's the only time because you you, you, if you don't scratch that itch it's going to nag at you forever or it's going to manifest as regret later on in your life and so if i could offer anything practical the first four videos on my channel are unpublished because I just had to get them out of my head. I just had to test this format of making videos, talking to a camera, sharing my thoughts on a topic, and I never published them. And not a lot of people know that because I was just so bad on camera and it was so cringy and so unstructured. And so I don't think that everything that you have to create has to get shared with the world. I think sometimes just getting it off your chest and creating it can sometimes be enough. And sometimes you'll see it and you'll be like, yeah, that was kind of stupid. (laughs) And then you'll just move on and that will be kind of the end of it. But I think until you do that, if it's nagging at you that hard, whether it's a dish you want to create or someone you want to interview or, you know, that girl or guy that you want to ask out, I think that it's all the same feeling. I think that how you use to kind of deploy that is the 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 important point of it all but i think um yeah just seeing other people who just really didn't care i i I really like mkbhd on youtube the guy who does all the tech review channels because his journey has just been fascinating to watch where he was shoot stuff in his like childhood bedroom on a webcam talking about a new computer graphics card or a phone and then all of a sudden he's you know, shooting shows with YouTube. He's going sneaker shopping with Complex. He's shooting on red cameras and 8K and getting flown all over the world to drive in high-end electric cars. Like, he's he's made it for himself. And if anybody along his journey would have told him, man, I think that's kind of stupid that you make videos about cell phones. And he would have listened to them and said, yeah, you're right, this is kind of stupid. Then he wouldn't be where he is today. And I just think that if anybody has it in their in in their soul to kind of drive forward an idea or express themselves in a certain way, and if it's not going to hurt anyone, I don't really think you have any benefit to listening to somebody else's opinion on what you're trying to create. So I guess that's my piece on it. I I just I, I I'm thankful that all the critics, if there was any criticism that ha- and you know maybe it's all in my head and no one really gave a fuck what I was doing and. <laughs> No one, everybody just thought it was silly that I was creating YouTube videos. But had someone come to me and said, 
you know, I think that what you're creating is kind of stupid. I had this hardcore reason why. Like, yeah, you might think the video sucks or my audio quality is is really bad. But in my heart of hearts, I really just want to help the industry. And so, yes, I am going to upload next week, even though you th- you just told me that this video idea was stupid. I saw value there. And so if you can find value in it that's deeper than money or followers or you know what I mean? And and that's that's another conversation that we can have later because I know we're trying to wrap up here is the difference between discouraging people from going for followers and encouraging people to build a community. I think they're two very different things, right? So if you're chasing mm-hmm. followers just for numbers, yeah. that's one thing. But at, at the same time, you can't have a community without numbers. Do you know what I mean? It, it, it can be a community like you, Ray, you and I can be the line cook thoughts community. But if that's the case, it's just going to be these conversations over and over again, you and I just riffing on whatever is top of mind for us. But the reason that the Line Code Thoughts community is what it is, is because it's more than just you, you know? And so I think that there, we don't have to stigmatize numbers as bad as we do. Like everyone's like, oh, well, so-and-so has 30,000 followers. Like it must just be all, you know, like just bots or people that don't care. But then the 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 opposite is more often true than that you know the people who have the really engaged audience of 10,000 50,000 300,000 people those are the people that make waves and actually get get stuff done and so i don't know yeah. that's just a random random thought but i i don't know i hope that that helps anybody who's you know feeling in a rut or feeling like well i really want to do this thing but i'm not sure um don't live with that regret it's 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 way better to do it now than uh than than wait on it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, Justin, thank you again so much. I mean, this was great. Another hour has flown by and you know, I hope we can keep doing these once in a while to kind of just address the industry or at least chat a little bit more on what we like to chat about with social media and business and whatnot, but Thank you so much for taking no, the time. I know it, it was a short notice, but it worked yeah, out great. And I, I don't think that our first interview ever made it on the emulsion, but we have committed to uploading this as an emulsion episode. So this will be the first time that Ray DeLucci is on the podcast, which is great. Uh, but yeah, I certainly don't see this being the last time we chat. And I wish you continued success going forward, my friend. We did it. You're in outro land now. Thank you so much. I appreciate your ears more than you'll ever know. Hey, by making it to the end, you're the type of person that I want to speak to directly. This little production is constantly growing. If you enjoyed this episode, if you like what I'm trying to do with this show and want to make sure more people can find us, a free way to help out that takes less than three minutes is to leave The Emulsion a great review on iTunes. If you didn't enjoy this show, please also leave a review. I'm happy to take any constructive feedback you've got. If you want to learn more about supporting this show with your hard-earned cash, patreon.com slash justinkana is the place to do that. I've got tiers starting at just $1 per month. Let's say you just like being involved through suggesting stories to be covered or asking questions to my interview guests. You can stay up to date by following along on Twitter or Instagram that is linked up in the description for your convenience or always available on justincona.com. If you're on YouTube and listening, you can take this show on the go because this is available on all podcast platforms, including Spotify. And if you prefer video versions of things like my interview shows or the shorter intermezzo episodes and you're listening audio only, please check out my YouTube channel to see more of that. Now is normally where I'd say my name is Justin Kana and I hope you have a good one, but you've probably got another podcast episode to listen to. So I'm just going to get out of the out of the way here. 
Excuse me. Pardon me. 